This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comics show. I'm your host Matthew Rushing and with me as he will be from now on for the rest of his life. No, I don't know about that, but <laughs> is Dan Gunther. Dan, how are you doing today? Hi uh, Matthew, I'm doing quite well. Uh, really excited to be on here. Kind of uh, can't believe that I'm the number two on this show now. It's uh, really exciting. Yeah, uh, you know, just so everybody knows, um, Chris has a brand new job, and that has uh, kept him from being able to do a lot of podcasting. And uh, when we need to podcast during the week, uh, he just isn't able to do that with his schedule now. He's got a lot of traveling commute time, and so um, it just doesn't fit in to, to be able to do all the shows that he does. And I was so glad because I was very worried about what would happen to Literary Treks because I needed somebody else who knew the books and actually had the interest in them and wanted to continue to do this for a while. And and I immediately thought of Dan because we've had you on before. And I was so excited. I mean, honestly, I asked you to do it and I was just like waiting by my phone. I'm like, (laughs) respond, please say yes, please say yes. And and when you did, I I was really ecstatic. So I'm so glad to have you here, Dan. Well, I have to say I was incredibly honored uh, that you would ask me to be on the show with you. And kind of like Valeris and Spock in Star Trek VI when he says, you know, I intend you to replace me. I could never replace Christopher, but I'm very happy to uh, to come on board and uh, fill some very, very big shoes. <laughs> Well, I'm excited to have you here, and and uh, you know, you doing Treklet reviews. I followed you for a long time, and your website. It's one of the first things I found when I was kind of searching for, you know, Star Trek book stuff. You and 805 were some of the first people that I I actually found James over there, and so I've enjoyed those reviews. Um, and you've read through a lot of Trek books. What are some of your favorites? Oh, there's so many. Um... If you're looking at kind of more classic books, I have to say uh, Spock's World by Diane Duane and um, uh, Federation are two of my absolute favorite of the novels. Uh, Diane Duane's actually, I'm, I'm reading the last couple of her novels that I've never read before, uh, finally, and she was an amazing, she is an amazing writer, and maybe someday she'll do Trek again? I don't know. That would be really cool. Uh, 
on top of that, all of the new novels that have been coming out recently, the 24th century continuity stuff with the Typhon Pact and the fall, uh, I'm eating those up. Those are great. And Kirsten Byers Voyager series, of course, is just a gem that I love reading every time. I I not gonna lie, I can't get enough Kirsten Beyer and You're her here. books. I mean, <laughs> she's just fantastic. And in fact, the last time that we talked with her about acts of contrition, we were we were just talking about um, shore leave, and and I'm hoping to be able to get there one day because so many of the authors go there and just to be able to hang out with them and, and have oh, such a great time, you know, over some drinks talking about Star Trek and, and all sorts of things. I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. So I would love to go to shore leave. Um, I ha- I've never been able to, and it's definitely on my list. I definitely would love to go. You know, what's funny too, is that I'd rather go to shore leave than Star Trek Las Vegas, just because it's the books, you know? Absolutely. I agree with you. Um, I've actually been to the Vegas convention a couple times. Um, and thinking back on it, kind of wish I'd spent one of those times going to Baltimore instead of Vegas because shore leave looks amazing. Yeah, it really does. Um, you know, it, the way that they put it on and, and how it's still very much fan based and the, the focus on authors in the books. And, you know, to me, I'm surprised that that just doesn't happen at Vegas. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Because it's a really important part of Star Trek these days, especially, I, geez, it's the only place to get Enterprise or the 24th century or, you know, just a lot of these things. Or anything to do with the Prime Universe. Yeah, really. exactly. It's That's... the only place to go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, well, we don't have a lot here in news this week. There actually isn't a ton out. Uh, one of the things that I just wanted to do was that remind everybody that the collectors, Christopher L. Bennett's brand new Department of Temporal Investigations novel is out. Uh, it, you can get that, pick that up wherever you get your ebooks, whether it's iBooks or Kindle or whatever. Dan and I were talking about it before we uh, started recording here and on the other side of the page, and he said, it's crazy awesome. <laughs> Those were his words. So I'm excited to to dive into this book, and we're going to be talking about it next week. So pick that up because I think you're going to want to stick around for that. It's definitely a treat. Awesome. Highly recommended. <laughs> there you go. It comes highly recommended from Treklet Reviews. So what more <laughs> do you need? What else were we able to find this week for news? Uh, well, I see here that the uh, Shadow of the Machine blurb uh, has been released. That's another uh, ebook novella coming out in a few months. Yeah, I'm really excited about this um, because it takes place like literally right after the motion picture. And this is going to give, I think, the characters a little reflection. It, it talks about that the recent encounter with V'ger... Uh, the USS Enterprise returns to the dock. They've got to finish their refit, and the crew is granted a two-week period of shore leave. Um, and so, shaken by their encounter with V'ger, Kirk, Spock, and Sulu travel to their respected homes and must reflect on their lives, now changed forever. And so, uh, Scott Harrison, think, I think he has a, a real treat here for us with uh, one of those smaller and more reflective e-novellas that we've been getting. Uh, And I think this is one that I'm just excited about to see, because there's a big change from Spock's character from the motion picture to, obviously, Star Trek II. Mm -hmm. And hoping this will kind of fill in some of those gaps. Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of character pieces and character development and introspection and that sort of thing. And this looks like it's going to get deep into the uh, lives of these characters. 
Yeah, which I'm I'm super excited about. Anytime that we can kind of get some more introspection on like a Kirk or Spock or if somebody like Sulu, who we just don't get a ton with in a lot of places, I, I'm excited about. So, well, we've got a great show coming up for you with Greg Cox. But before we go, I wanted to tell you about our sponsor, Audible. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming each week. They've got classics to current bestsellers, and they've got even some of those famous Star Trek books out there like Prime Directive, Federation, and Spock's World. What's great is that Audible really has something for everyone. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice with a 30-day audio trial just to see how great Audible is. So give that a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books that you've always wanted to read but you just don't have time for, and especially those latest novels from that favorite author that you just really love. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for their support of Literary Treks and the network. Well, Dan, I'm really excited tonight because we've got a great treat for everyone. And we've got another great author interview. And as everybody knows, Foul Deeds Will Rise just came out not too long ago. And Greg Cox is here to talk about that book with us. Greg, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. Second time this year, I think. Definitely. Um, I'm really excited about that. You know, we had no time like the past uh, at the beginning of the year, and now you're going to close out the year for us. So um, that's really exciting. So for you with this book, this is one of those books that um, I was really looking forward to because it was going to take place in the movie era or a.k.a. the maroon jacket era. and (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's favorite uniforms. That's right. Uh, if we could all only afford those, um, oh, man. you know, it's so cool. Where did, for you, the genesis of this story kind of come from, and where did it start? Well, you know, it's funny. This is one case where I can literally pinpoint the moment where the idea occurred to me. I was doing a rewatch of the original series, and I was rewatching The Conscience of the King. And at the very end of that episode, there's a bit where McCoy assures Kirk that not to worry, you know, poor crazy Lenore will get the best help possible. You know, she'll be okay, Jim, you know, we'll we'll get her the best help possible. And of course, that's the last we ever hear of her. And I said, well, whatever did happen to her? Did the vaunted psychological therapy of the 21st century, you know, help her? Was she rehabilitated? Did she get past all this? Because in other episodes, like Whom Gods Destroy and Think of the Mind, we hear about how, you know, wonderful, you know, the psychological treatments of the 23rd century are. But we, you know, ironically, we hear about how wonderful it is, but every time we see it, it's some sort of horrible snake in asylum. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, so, well, was, is, is Lenore a success story? And whatever happened to her? And what would happen if Kirk met her again, maybe many years later? And, oh, you know, that could be a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, watching uh, Whom Gods Destroy, and they talked about the drug that supposedly ended most, if not all, mental health issues the Federation over. And I remember kind of thinking at that point, like, oh, that that's like five people we've met over the course of the series that are probably on that drug now. And, you know, they didn't never actually named that drug, much to my annoyance when I went back hmm. and watched whom God's destroy, they never actually give it a name. So I actually had to come up with a name for that drug. Hmm. And 
to give credit where it's due, actually, my friend Tony Daniel, who's also a truck rider, I was stuck. He came up with the name for the drug for me. Oh, perfect. Oh, that's awesome. I was like, help, Tony, I need a drug for it. I need a name for an insanity-curing drug. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that, <laughs> that's an interesting text message right there. <laughs> I feel like authors have the best conversations. <laughs> I think I, get, I think Tony gets a shout out in the acknowledgments for coming up with the name of the drug. Okay. <laughs> for you having Lenore back and how did you come up with crafting the rest of the story, especially with the Pavakians and the Oulu, uh, coming up with a, a new set of races to have the, the Enterprise, you know, kind of be in the middle of? Where did all that come from for you? Well, it started with me trying to figure out what happened to Lenore after she was rehabilitated. I had the idea that she would be out in some sort of hot spot working for the Peace Corps or something, or the 23rd century trying to atone for her father's crimes, which meant that I then had to come up with a sort of political situation that, you know, um, she could be in the mi- middle of. As it turned out, since we are now on a peacekeeping mission, which we've seen the Enterprise do before, that tied in with the whole themes of trying to get over the past and bloody history and can you ever move on? past horrible atrocities. In inventing the Pavakians and the Oyolu, I I basically tried to come up with two very different cultures so you could tell them apart easily, not just generic races with different bumps on their heads. Mm. And I wanted something that wasn't, maybe at least, Lord knows we've seen enough peacekeeping missions in Star Trek, but I wanted to come up with a situation that wasn't just the Cardassians and the Bajorans all over again. I had sort of vaguely in mind something kind of like maybe the Opium Wars, you know, uh, back in between the Western powers and China, where you had sort of imperialist traders and colonialism. And that was sort of where I, my starting point, and I just sort of built up on the whole sort of history. I wanted to not make it just the evil oppressors and the innocent victims on one side. And so it was nicely ambiguous and just really a mess kind of like also North, I was thinking Northern Ireland or something all of which gets sort of tied in there so mm-hmm. and like I said that sort of it started with me trying to find a situation wondering what you know Lenore would be doing in a situation where she would bump into Kirk again and then peacekeeping missions and then sort of I built up on that the whole idea of and again the whole disarmament thing I don't think we'd ever really seen we've seen them doing peacekeeper missions before i'm not sure we've ever seen them doing a sort of you know arms inspections so i kind of like the idea of having the enterprise being brought in as a neutral to do arms inspections in terms of weapons of mass destruction you know mm-hmm. yeah but kind of really all, all of that kind of got built up starting with the um lonora plotline and then building up beyond that to give it a bigger context because just the reunion between lonora and kirk is a short story you know <laughs> you need to have more of bigger stakes so mm-hmm. weapons of mass destruction and a peace treaty and etc and a murder mystery and yeah at some point i really got well, fixed the idea of doing a murder mystery aboard the enterprise which i'm not sure i'd ever done before so mm-hmm. yeah i really liked the uh the aspect of the the weapons inspectors from the enterprise i thought that was kind of cool um anytime star trek does something that's a little different than what we've seen but you know makes a lot of sense for the role that starfleet and the federation play i i thought that was great and sort of patrolling the buffer zones between the two planets yeah mm-hmm. well and really giving the i, I think the 
impression that the galaxy has uh, around the Federation of Starfleet and the good that it does, that was nice to see too because, you know, a lot of times uh, people uh, can perceive Starfleet in and maybe sometimes a bad light because of some of the things that happen. And I love to hear that they're being brought in because of their reputation of, you know, being people that are trustworthy and um, dispassionate towards either side. You know, they just want what's best for everyone. So I thought that was a really cool uh, aspect to see of, you know, Kirk and, and, the, and the Federation, and, and specifically not just the Federation, but Starfleet here. Mm-hmm. For you in this, you know, being in the in the movie era, it gives you the opportunity to write the characters who have progressed and grown and become a little older and, and maybe a little bit wiser as they do throughout the films. And, you know, being between five and six, you know, you have a lot to play with. What are some of the, the things that you really enjoy or, or just talk about writing the characters as they're older? Because you've done a lot in the TOS era. What are some of the things that are make that a lot different to write, say, in the movie era? Well, you're dealing writing, particularly with Spock. He's a somewhat different character. He's a little warmer. He's not quite as conflicted as he um, was back in the original series, wrestling with his human and Vulcan halves. Um, I'm not a big fan of Star Trek V, but <laughs> one of the really moments I, I – shocking news there, yeah. Um, one of the good moments, one of my favorite moments in Star Trek V is the moment when, you know, Cybok tries to sort of, you know, push Spock's buttons about being an outcast and, you know, and Spock's like, um, I'm not that guy anymore. I'm at peace. I am not the, you know, conflicted hybrid, you know, kid you knew back when we were growing up on Vulcan. I, which, you know, because Spock has a whole nice arc over the course of the six movies, starting with his epiphany when he meets Viger, you know, in the first film. And yet acknowledging the growth of the character was a nice moment in Star Trek V. And I, I liked sort of picking up on that in this book. Another of my goals for this book, and I'm always setting myself new goals because just after having written umpteen Star Trek novels, I'm always trying to, you know, not repeat myself and find new ways to keep myself interested. Um, Chekhov. I wanted to do more of Chekhov. I have been bad. I have genuinely neglected Chekhov in my books. He's been the guy sitting there going, yes, sir, Captain, you know. <laughs> so I wanted to give Chekhov a chance to shine. And here, in this case, good. I, you're not writing Chekhov the green young kid. You can write mm-hmm. Chekhov as a guy who's got some responsibility. He's the security chief of the Enterprise. Um, so I could, you know, I could actually give, you know, quite deliberately I gave Chekhov a green young kid to be his assistant, you know. Uh so, yeah, one of the advantages of going to the movie era is like you write a sort of older, you know, more responsible Chekhov who's just not the, the, the kid in the Beatles wig, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really great, uh, in particular, um, Chekhov's role in the novel, because, you know, we get told all the time that he's the security chief during the movies, but we never really see that. Uh, the only time I can really think of is kind of investigating the assassination of Gorkon, but, you know, everybody was kind of in on that. So it was really cool to see Chekhov doing his thing. Well, shameless confession, the reason why I, in fact, got Spock off the ship and sort of dispatched Spock off to it through, through the B-plot is so that Chekhov could have a chance to shine. Oh, that's perfect. 
Star Trek Six, yeah, of course, Spock is going to take over the investigation, and Spock's the guy who's going to make. And it'd be very hard to write a murder mystery aboard the Enterprise where Spock is stumped with check off check I think that would stretch credibility. Yeah, nobody would buy that. <laughs> had to be investigating the mystery. It was kind of like, I have to get Spock off the ship, and I have to ask hmm. a reason why Spock is inaccessible, and why Kirk has to trust rely on, you know, like a, you know. Yeah, you know, so Sp- Spock was, I had to get rid of, because otherwise Spock would solve the mystery in five minutes, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Even in Star Trek VI, it's Spock who basically solves everything, because, well, he's Spock. Right. Like, Chekhov finds the blood, but Spock puts it all together. <laughs> exactly. I kind of had to get rid of Spock. Or give Spock his own stuff to keep him busy with. <laughs> and logically, Kirk, if it's that urgent, would say, Spock, solve this. You know, if Spock right. was there. I think I even have Spock Kirk wishing that Spock was aboard a few times, you know, but no, 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 I have to trust Chekhov. You know, Chekhov's a good man. He'll do it. You know, damn, I wish Spock was around. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but Chekhov comes through in the end. Yeah. Well, that, that gives you a real good way to, to be able to play with characters that you just, you know, in TOS, they are on the sidelines a lot. You get a Sulu on the sideline or a Hura on the sideline or any of those kind of things. And, so it's nice to be able to 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 take that character like Chekhov, who we really just don't know that much about, other than the fact that he's Russian, and for him, everything Mother Russia is the best. You know, I, I felt like he's just a more rounded character here, and I really appreciated that. Well, I'd done a previous novel, The Weight of Worlds, where yeah, I tried yeah. to give Sulu and Yurura much more screen time. That was those, but even in that book, I could only you know. I had to give a certain amount of screen time to Kirk and Spock, so poor Chekhov ended up... I remember writing Weight of Worlds and thinking, okay, poor Chekhov is getting neglected again. You know, I will give Chekhov his due down the road, but not this book. Sulu and Yorora got some focus in Weight of Worlds, but even then, I was back in my head was the idea, okay, Chekhov, your turn is coming. And that was how to arise. Writing Kirk here, too, I mean, he's he's definitely that movie-era Kirk. He's been through the... The, the fire with two, three, and four, you know, in five, he's been tested emotionally with Cybok. And so he's a, he's a much different character. And you, I felt like really did a great job playing with that as we move into, or, or we're moving closer towards, you know, the undiscovered country. What are, what were some of the joys for writing this Kirk as compared to the Kirk that, you know, is a man who just, goes in where angels fear to tread and, and doesn't really think about his you, the actions that he's taking you know he'll he'll shoot first and he'll ask questions later you know but this Kirk is is much more you know thoughtful and and, and uh, very deliberate in his actions and he's a bit even a bit more rueful a little bit more melancholy you know um, he's been through a lot as you say and one of the things I was picking up on I had very much Rafa Khan in mind in that Kirk has sort of learned the hard lessons about, you know, the past coming back to haunt him. He, he, he's always been kind of good for moving on and sort of leaving things behind. Khan came back to haunt him. David Marcus came back to haunt him. So one of his motives for trying to find closure here with Lenore is there's Lenore's one more thing in his past that he kind of dealt with and moved on. He actually, feel, it's mentioned in the book, he feels a bit guilty of the fact that he kind of lost track of her. And, oh, right, we shift her off to the Federation Funny Farm 20 years ago, and I really kind of just, I did lose track of her, you know, whatever happened to her, you know. Um, mm-hmm. 
and he acknowledges the fact that maybe, you know, follow-up has not been his strong suit necessarily in the past. You know, he never checked on Khan, and that came back to bite him. The David Marcus thing came back to bite him. So this is Kirk deciding that he's kind of got to come to terms with his past a bit more. He can't just keep plowing forward onto the next adventure, the next, you know, romance, the next whatever, you know, so... Well, and it's always a really interesting thing when, you know, the past becomes the present for you and, and you either relive it or like you said, it just comes back to bite you. Um, and, you know, that happens a lot for uh, these characters. And I thought it was really nice to kind of see all of them kind of find a, because you even had the ambassador have to do the same thing with Lenore and um, deal with that situation. And so really great choice and in, in a really powerful theme throughout this book. Like I said, you, you sort of, I, I don't actually sit down at a computer. I don't tend to start with messages or themes. I don't, hi, today I'm going to write a message, write a book about forgiveness. But I kind of think if you set up interesting characters and conflicts, the themes sort of take care of themselves. And once you start to pick up on them, and okay, I was able to tie in with the Pavakians and you've, and the, people who can get over the war, people who can't get over the world, people with old grudges and moving on. And it's tied into Kirk and Lenore. This tied into Kevin Riley and Lenore. That was another advantage to having a peacekeeping mission because once I had a peacekeeping mission, I needed an ambassador. And oh, Trek Books had already established that Kevin Riley became an ambassador. Kevin Riley had his own history with Lenore. So it all kind of dovetailed nicely together. Sometimes you get these moments of serendipity of, oh, right. You know, other authors have already established that Kevin Riley, whom Lenore tried to kill, is a Starfleet ambassador. I can use that and build on that. And it all dovetails kind of nicely. Hmm. Well, it was kind of cool, too, because you got the opportunity to kind of to deal with uh, what it looks like to take care of somebody who has had kind of a mental breakdown or may have mental illness. And, you know, that's been done off and on and sometimes not great in Star Trek, you know. Um, and I thought here it was just handled really well. The the amount of work that it actually takes for somebody to be able to overcome some of these kind of things, like even with the medication that she has and all of that, the fragility of the psyche after kind of going through all of these different things that she's been through, I thought that was really, really well done. And, um, you know, it, it speaks to, there's a lot of people who have these kind of issues in life, um, because of things that have happened to them, uh, even touching on the PTSD that, uh, warriors feel, you know, uh, you know, when you come back from, from war, uh, and all of that, I, I thought that was really, really nice to see in a Trek book, just that kind of reflection that, Somebody who may have been there may read this and think it's it's nice to see myself portrayed even in the future. This is still a really tough thing to deal with. Well, I actually, right after the last draft, I was going back and forth on just how long it took to cure Lenore. And eventually, I think I had where I settled in something like 15 years. And that was partly to fit the demands of my plot and to fit into the movie era. But also, like I said, boy, she had a lot of issues. Uh, you know, <laughs> her, her father was a mass murderer uh, she ended up murdering her own father. She killed seven people. I know one little magic drug, like in Who God's Destroy, was not going to fix that. Okay. I go make a big point of, yes, that cured Garth overnight because his problem was, you know, largely physical. He had, been, had an accident that 
just with his brain chemistry. No, uh, Lenore needed years and years of therapy to come to terms with the fact that she murdered seven people and killed her own father, who, who by the way, was Kodos, the executioner, who murdered thousands of people, you know. <laughs> she had issues, <laughs> and there wasn't yeah. going to be a quick fix, you know. Yeah, I actually really appreciated that part because that was one thing I remember when I was watching Whom Gods Destroy and thinking like, I don't know, magic hand wave drug, uh, but I loved the way you explained it, you know, something physiological or brain chemistry wise. Yeah, of course, that can be fixed. But, you know, deep rooted psychological issues, they're a little more serious and they take a little bit more to um, unravel than just a magic hand wave. One thing I consider that didn't make it into a book is we never hear anything about Lenore's mother in the episode. And at one point I tried to figure out what her backstory was or what happened to the mom, but just the plot was very busy. There was never really a time to sort of insert it, so that ended up not being in the book. But, you know. hmm. but, well, you know, there was a war going on and murders and assassinations, and, you know. <laughs> Eventually, I was like, okay, there's, no, there's really no good place to sit down and deal with, you know, whatever happened to her mom. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, and where you leave it, too, is is always a, a place where somebody could always pick up that story, you know, yeah. with her and, and tell that story as well. I, I think that's one of those things that a good Trek book leaves a, enough unanswered questions to feel like, oh, I could go explore this now or I could go explore this now or oh, I want to find out a book that talks more about this. And so that's the the wonder of the, the kind of the Trek-lit universe is you can almost always find something that will talk about whatever it is that you're interested in or want to know more about or give the author an opportunity to follow up on what he wrote. This book, I, I really, really appreciated this as well. I, I, I kind of thought of it as being like this faith of the heart moment because there's that point where Lenore really just wants to to give up and uh Kirk believes in her and he tells her that he believes in her and it changes her perspective on herself and I thought it really drove the point home very well that a lot of people that have these kind of issues they need somebody to believe in them especially if if you're trying to overcome something that was really detrimental to you. You know, you need somebody to come along and say, I believe in you. I, I think you can do it. And, and I'm going to be here for you. And, and that belief instills belief in yourself. Um, and the the big importance of, you know, because I, I feel like people will very much live up to the expectations that people have of them. You know, so if you don't have any expectations or you have very low expectations for somebody, or somebody like Lenore, you kind of end up living up to that and never moving past or feeling like you can actually get better. But Kirk's one moment there of just saying, I, I believe in you, I loved that. I thought it was really beautiful. It, I mean, personally, I've experienced that as well. So I thought that was a really powerful moment in this story. And of course, one of the advantages on the other side of having Riley on board is that Riley is not so quick to forgive her. So she's got to kind of like stare him in the face and he's sort of representing the other point of view of, you know, Kirk, are you crazy? She's a psycho killer. What are you doing? You know? <laughs> Have you forget, forgotten she tried to poison me, you know, and murdered, <laughs> your, and murdered your friend. I'm blanking on his name now, but the, the, the scarred guy from the beginning of the episode, you know, um, Kirk's old friend, you know. You can't just wash, you can't just sweep it under the rug. And 
part of Riley's job is to keep reminding us and reminding Lenore that, hey, you know, oh, it's very easy. Oh, well, you know, that was 20 years ago. I was forgiven. Well, no, she's got, she's got a long string of bodies behind her, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And that was one of the functions of having Riley. I kind of actually remember while I was reading it and, you know, maybe I'm just not as good a person as Kirk or as, you know, forgiving, but I was kind of in the camp of like, are you crazy, Kirk? You know, what are you doing bringing her aboard? And I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and and uh, he doesn't know that these murders are going to happen. But, you know, even though, you know, whether she did it or not, um, she's going to distract the the investigation and you know distract from possible other suspects and that sort of thing um so i mean i was kind of sympathizing with riley there even though i know it was no no i should be more forgiving but i i well you know someone had to express that <laughs> point of view absolutely riley, yeah riley does it and one of the also one of the nice things about i like about writing riley is because riley is such a likable character we have this Generally, as we know, in terms of Star Trek crusades, often when there's a Disney ambassador or commissioner, they tend to be very stuffy bureaucrats and they always end up looking very bad. The world is, <laughs> TOS in particular, is full of obnoxious Federation diplomats who, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, so bringing in a sort of, so rather than just writing standard, you know, ambassador blowhard, um, <laughs> well, no, we bring in Riley, who we are already have a reason to be sympathetic. And, Riley is not just being automatically knee-jerk. Riley has good reason. Because remember, also, Riley, not only did Lenore hurt to poison him, but you know, Lenore's dad killed his entire family, you know? Right. So, yeah, he's not going, oh, well, you know, all's forgiven. It couldn't be easy, just like it isn't easy for the aliens on the two planets to make peace. And just, you know, kumbaya, oh, well, we've been murdering each other for generations now, bombings, atrocities, massacres, refugees, Oh, well, we're just going to shake hands and make up now. No. Uh, so, yeah, Riley is important there, but also, Riley, you know, Riley makes, has, has his issues, and he's not wrong about, you know. And when everything starts going to hell, yeah, um, it puts Kirk in a really difficult position, you know. <laughs> my, my, job is, my job as a writer is to put Kirk in very difficult positions, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it certainly was. One of the neat things about working with uh, Star Trek and a murder mystery is that you can kind of create some very interesting murder plots. Talk a little bit just about, and we are going to, I want to get a little spoilery here, so I'm going to give the warning to everyone. Having the murder plot go the way you did, where did you come up with that? And, and um, I mean, obviously it, it links to the episode with Kirk and what happened to him, but what made you think, oh, this is the best way to go and and really working that in? Well, I remember I had a whole list of possible twists. And one thing I wanted was I didn't, because it is a Star Trek murder mystery, it couldn't just be something mundane. And, I, you know, it had to involve a sci-fi twist. <laughs> and too spoilerly, there's, a twist to the mystery and how the killer got away with the perfect murder, as it were. And it, I, I knew it had to involve, and I had a whole list of possibilities. I, you know, clones, time travel, you know, invisibility, super speed, whatever, telekinesis. <laughs> um, I, I think there's even a line in the book where Chekhov is sort of acknowledging that these days and trying to figure out how murders are done, you have to kind of allow for telekinesis, psychic abilities, you know, weird sci-fi transporters you know and I remember at one point we were debating back and forth the solution and at one point uh, we came up with a somewhat more mundane 
explanation for how the killer did it. And I was like, no, that, that's something you could do on Murder, She Wrote, or Monk. This is our subject <laughs> history. We have to kind of push the envelope a little bit and have something a little outrageous, you know, um, and has something that is specifically Star Trek about this mystery and tie it in. And I had a whole list of categories, but I, I really liked this one, that it was a twist which tied in with a famous episode. Um, without being too spoilery, there is a clue hidden very, very early in the book. Uh, you know, that tells you which episode I'm thinking mm-hmm. about. Okay, but... well when i was reading it i remember thinking like how is you know how is this going to be resolved it's it's going to be crazy it's going to be big i don't know what it could possibly be and you know i was like you know what you know what could it be and then finally got there and you didn't disappoint i was blown away and i thought that was brilliant i thought the resolution was just sublime (laughs) well I, i remember i made up a list of like sci-fi murder mystery twists and that was I had some backups in case that didn't fly with you know CBS or my editor but yeah that was my favorite idea from the beginning you know (laughs) well and it's it is it's very Star Trek and it's very unique and it really does a great job of just showing how dedicated this person is to completing this mission because there is the the big possibility that you know, they won't live through it because of the procedure that they go through with the transporter. So I, I really thought that you surprised me because I, I just wasn't thinking like that. You know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, murder mystery and you got me going and I wasn't thinking about the huge, massive twist in that idea. And I loved it. I, I you know, maybe maybe I should have been more thinking about the it. The year gap between the original series and this book also helped and helped sort of justify yes. that. Like, once again, these things happen original series was not strong on continuity things happen and then you never hear about it again so right <laughs> there was this one development it, it, i remember talking about the matter okay it's been 20 years surely someone has researched this and figured out how to recreate it in 20 years you know um and indeed you know the federation didn't just forget that this happened federation scientists didn't just forget that this <laughs> happened you know and is doable there would be reams of scientific papers and 20 years of research, you know, to justify why they were able to do it again. Okay. uh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, one of the things that we talked we were talking about a little bit before the show and I thought was really interesting is, uh, and I wanted to talk about it here for everyone. So writing in the, in the movie era, you know, uh, talk about for you as a writer, what it means to try and fit a story in that time period and how much, time do you guys have to play with yeah how many years would you say you know in the movie era do you actually have is you know between one and two and then you know two three and four happen very quickly and then five seems to happen pretty quickly after that and then between five and six so what's it like trying to work that in and do you guys have any limitations as authors there's no official memo or document or timeline or anything um Basically, as you mentioned, when you're going to do something in the movie era, there's basically two gaps because two, three, four, and five happen on short succession to each other. So there's not much room to grab anything. Oh, by the way, on the way home from, you know, <laughs> saving the whales, we stopped to have six more adventures. You know, uh, like the DC comics. <laughs> well, there are the DC comics, yeah. And you got to keep we're discussing that. You got to keep them in mind, too. And we're, we're not obliged to be beholden to what happened in the DC comics. They don't have, I don't want to just repeat what they already did. Right. <laughs> um, 
and I may occasionally throw in a Easter egg to them. But no, basically, you, you've got a gap between the first and second movie, and you've got a gap between the fifth and sixth movie. Um, there isn't a big gap between the fifth and sixth movie because you've got things happening because, you know, okay, is this before or after Sulu leaves to go take over the Excelsior, you know? And when does Valeris come in? And, you know, but yeah, that, that gap between five and six is sort of the bit because they get a brand new Enterprise, gets its pretty much shakedown cruise in number five, and then time passes before suddenly they're shutting things down in number six, you know? So that was the era... When I decided I was going to write the book this era, I, I actually, like I said, didn't get an official ruling from Paramount or anything or CBS. I basically called my writer friends, picked their brains, looked at the other books written in that era, saw what had been done, pulled down the Star Trek chronology from my bookshelf, went on. There's no shortage of reference sources on Star Trek these days. There's Memory Alpha. There's Memory Beta. I've got two bookshelves full of Star Trek reference you know, materials. Um, and, and like I said, pick my other writer friends' brains. Okay, what have we else? What have we already established in this era? What have the other guys done? You know, etc. And yeah, I just sort of roughly, I decided that in this case tilted closer to Star Trek Five than Star Trek Six because honestly, I wanted to keep Sulu on board. Uh, and I didn't, so it was shortly thereafter Star Trek Five because they got the new ship. The sh they've worked all the bugs out of the new ship. Sulu is still around. Valeris hasn't shown up yet, so we can just move on, you know. That, you know, that would seem like the best place to set, set the book. Well, I'm excited too because that's a this whole era, you know, between one and two is is really exciting because there's a lot that can happen there with a whole five year mission, and you know, we do know uh, Sulu was in the Beta Quadrant for what two years cataloging gaseous anomalies and, and yeah so you really so yeah there's a sort of a narrow window there between five and six you know if you want to that you, yeah exactly um so that that's that's there's lots of room to play with i hope you guys get a chance to to do it um more because i really enjoy exploring these characters in that that time period so you got to write the no time like the past and uh, that was out this uh spring and you're closing out the year here with Foul Deeds Will Rise. What's coming up for you next? What have you got in the works uh, for us uh, maybe next year? Well, I am, in fact, got another book I am plugging away at. I, I'm going to be vague here because I'm just early into it. But no, I've got another book coming up. It's another classic TOS book. It's not set in the movie era. Um, but I'm sort of, and I'm very just shortly into it. You know, uh, it's due in March, <laughs> so I'm plugging away on it. It's coming good so far. Um, I'm also already thinking ahead. I'm not a done deal. I'm juggling a couple other projects. I've got some outlines I've been talking about. And I am, in fact, flirting with the idea of doing another movie era thing. It's oh, yeah. not a done deal yet, but I had fun doing um, Foundries Would Rise. So I've been talking to Margaret Clark at Pocket Books about doing another movie or a thing. I have an idea. I've done some notes, written a short outline, so we're talking about it. And they're also going to be... But honestly, we're, we're looking ahead at 2016, because in 2016, we've got the 50th anniversary coming up. So people are... We're already brainstorming trying to come up with cool stuff for 2016, you know. That's awesome. Oh, that sounds exciting. <laughs> 
Well, hey, no. who knows what's going to happen with whether or not we'll have a film, but I'm just excited what you guys are going to come up with for um, the, the books because I, I know whatever it is, it's going to be stellar. Now, Greg, here. <laughs> before we do let you go, I know you write lots of other things as well. So what are some of the other things that our listeners need to be out there looking for at the bookstores or elsewhere from you? Well, nothing in the immediate future, honestly. Like I said, I had a twofer this year. I recently, this summer, wrote the novelization of the new Godzilla movie, which was <laughs> a lot of fun. Um, I recently wrote an X-Files short story for an upcoming X-Files anthology. I'm still waiting to hear back from the editor on that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I've never done the X-Files before, so that was fun. So, jumping into those characters and gave me an excuse to go watch a lot of my whole favorite episodes again. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Excellent. But Mulders, yeah, yeah. you can't be serious. Surely you don't mean, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I had lots of fun writing Scully's skeptical attitudes. So poor Scully, a poor woman. You know, this was not her <laughs> this, is, this is Mulder's crusade. She's the one who keeps getting dragged off to, you know, God knows where to investigate, you know. <laughs> My heart goes out to Scully because she's always sort of like, you know, why are we standing in the desert in the middle of nowhere looking at a dead goat? You know, kind of thing. But, <laughs> uh, you know. So, yeah, I wrote an X-Files story, which I'm actually waiting to hear back on from the editor on, but that's supposed to be for a short story collection coming out from IDW. And otherwise, not a lot. Honestly, I've been doing a lot of editing for Tor Books. I'm a consulting editor there. Uh, I've been working on a lot of projects for them while juggling two or three Star Trek projects. So... Awesome. And then cool. where can everybody find you online? Uh, at, well, just Google me, Greg Cox. I'm the first name that comes up. Uh, I have my website. I am not the restaurant reviewer, and I am not the policy <laughs> reviewer. <laughs> uh, uh, but no, uh, I have a website. Really, if you Google me, I'm the first thing that comes up. I, I, I like to think that drives to help the politicians in San Diego nuts, but okay. You know. <laughs> uh, That's yeah, awesome. So. And I try to be good about sort of updating my website periodically when I have new covers and things. So I wonder how often the, uh, the politician gets asked about the next Star Trek novel he's writing. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or the restaurant reviewer. Are you the same guy who writes the Star Trek books? Okay. You know, a... <laughs> yeah, I just do that on the side. Yeah. I, I like my Star Trek on the side where I like my sauce. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Greg, for, for talking to us. It's been great being able to have you on twice this year and talk about your books. And I'm excited to, to know we've got another one coming out next year and we'll look forward to getting a chance to catch up with you then. Uh, just have to roll up my sleeves and finish it. <laughs> <laughs> well, best of luck. Well, that was a really great conversation with uh, Greg Cox about Foul Deeds Will Rise. It really was. You know, I really enjoy getting to have him on. I mean, he's written so many Star Trek books now, and I love that for him, you know, he's really trying to challenge himself each time, you know, do something that he hasn't done. Uh, I think all the Trek authors do such a good job of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It was really cool to get kind of those insights into the thought processes that go into uh, starting writing a novel like that. Yeah, I, you know, it's so funny. I, I think I remember when I saw Star Wars back when I was a kid for the first time, and I started writing my own sequel to Star Wars, 
it's harder than it looks. Of course, I was also eight, so I didn't get very far. Um, but I wanted to, you know, because I just loved it so much. And it just, there's a lot more that goes into this than I think people think of. You know, like he was talking about having the whole bookshelf with chronologies and all that kind of stuff. The, the Star Trek reference materials that you you kind of need and you've got it all online now too. It's just, it's a lot to go through to, to make sure that it really lives up. Absolutely. But the thing also is that that work really shows through in the final product. I think it does, um, especially with, I don't know, just the last few years in Trek books. I feel like, and Chris and I talked about this before, just it feels like a renaissance almost. Yeah. You know, it it's the golden age, I think, of, of Trek books. Uh, and maybe it's just because they don't really have very many restrictions now. I mean, they can't write in the JJ verse, but... The Prime Universe is pretty much wide open, so mm-hmm. we've got the whole universe as a playground and, uh, you know, five, six different crews to play with and different time periods. Man, you're set. And you got to say that, you know, as the readers, we really win from that. <laughs> oh, God, no kidding. Well, it's been really fun talking about Foul Deeds Will Rise today, but it's just one of the Trek topics and and just one of the things we've been talking about here on Trek FM this week. So here's a quick look at some of the things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And and so I was biased against it. It, Even when I started buying the the two-disc collector's edition DVDs, I avoided buying any of the even-numbered movies. Odd-numbered movies. movies. Earl Grey. Like uh, like they stated in the end of the movie, you know, they thought he'd outlive all of them. And I'm like, yeah, that's what should have happened. We should have seen Data, like, in the, you know, 26th century, like Data 5.0, whatever we call him. To the journey! You don't know if she's going to stab him or smooch him. She's going to smooch him, of course, after dessert. (laughs) After dessert. We all know what dessert means. Warp 5. Along with technology and along with trying to study the origins of a lot of different things that we've come to know in in the original series and beyond, it's hard to try and deconstruct it without insulting what has come in all of the things that we know of being Vulcan Mind Meld. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And my thought was in the next scene, Crusher should have the body of the dead Klingon sitting on the back of her toilet holding a candle. You know, <laughs> what she, she would only get to do after Lieutenant Yara's gotten to hold the dead Klingon up to her ear to see if she can hear the ocean. Commentary, Trek stars. Everything you would imagine would be in an opening title sequence for this show is in there. I think the shot that really does it for me, the shot that really pulls everything together is when he dunks the basketball. (laughs) Melodic Treks. So we do know an awful lot of people get associated with Vic Fontaine. He name drops to the nth degree about all the famous people that he engraved with. One of whom is Frank Sinatra. Axenar, the official podcast. When there's a possibility for something to be misunderstood or um, not clearly explained it can potentially open up a big hole for a show because people can end up going down a path that was actually not what somebody wanted to be done. The 602 Club. What are those Bond movies that you go back to time and time again because they just do it better? Uh, First of all, Matthew, nobody does it better. That's true. Uh, It makes Uh, me feel sad for the rest. (laughs) 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 And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button. It really helps us out greatly and it makes it easier for the listeners to find the show as they search in iTunes. And the same thing with star reviews or written reviews. We really appreciate those. And if you give us one of those, we'll definitely mention you on the show. And of course, if you're listening from another country, send us a quick email and let us know that you did give us a review It's not easy for us to be able to figure that out. We actually have to change stores to be able to check and see if we've gotten new reviews. So if you just give us a quick review there, let me know and uh, because I definitely want to give you a shout out on the show. And guess what though, guys? If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download that MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well really like to thank our associate producers here on the show like to thank will win who's on twitter at will underscore win and of course at the babel conference he's also an associate producer on the orb and earl gray and as trek fm's content coordinator so if you have any ideas for future shows or content ideas you, you can email him at will.win at trek fm or just send him a tweet And I'd also really like to thank Lisa Stevens for her support of the network and being an associate producer for Literary Treks as well. You can find her on Twitter at Flip18. Before we go, I'd like to remind you about our sponsor, Audible, who helps bring Literary Treks and all of our shows to you each week. Audible is a great way for you to find all of those books that you've always wanted to read, you just didn't have time for. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get that free audiobook of your choice with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. And guess what? Even if you don't stay with Audible, you still get to keep that book. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for their support of Literary Treks and the network. Now, Dan, where can we find you online? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at trekletreviews, uh, facebook.com slash treklet reviews and of course my blog where i review new novels and old all star trek treklet.com awesome dan i'm really excited to have you here on literary treks it's i think it's going to be a great ride for us i'm really excited to be here <laughs> well guys of course you can find me at matt rushing 02 you can also find me doing the 602 club where we talk about all things geeky so just join us with ruby over there she'll get you a great drink and set you up for a geek conversation that week you can also find me on the orb talking about uh, deep space nine with christopher jones all the time and also my own personal blog at 42lifeofmidween.wordpress.com thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one